If you please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah was an only child when he returned with one of those first groups of, of Jewish exiles that had been released and they were able to come back to Judah and back to Jerusalem. And he grew up around Jerusalem watching it being rebuilt, watching the temple be rebuilt by great men like Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Joshua the priest. And it was a time of great hope. But it was also a time of great fear and uncertainty. Sixteen years into the building project, the work was stopped by opposition from the Samaritans, from those who lived in the land as they returned. And they sent back false reports to the king of Persia, and the king of Persia ordered them to stop the work. And so the people became concerned with other matters. They couldn't work on the temple, so they started to turn their attention to working on their own houses. And they were building these these beautiful cedarwood houses for themselves and making them elaborate. And they started to marry foreign women and worship their idols and divorce their own wives. And the people just fell into corruption and unfaithfulness as they had before. The, the unfinished temple fell into disrepair. And that's when a wise old prophet named Haggai began to preach to the people, calling them back to faithfulness to their covenant with God and to change their priorities. Basically, he told them, if you would give attention to the things of God, then He will help you with the details in your personal life. And two months into that elder prophet's preaching ministry, God called a young man named Zechariah, a young preacher, to come alongside the old preacher and to bring a similar message to the people. But Zechariah's ministry was different from Haggai's. Zechariah's ministry is characterized by these bizarre dreams. These really strange visions that acted as parables for the nation. And many of them dealt with what would happen to Israel in the immediate future and in the coming centuries. But some of it dealt with what would come on the day of the Lord in the distant future. But the overall message of Zechariah was very similar to Haggai's. God wants to shape you into being the kind of people who can participate in the building of God's kingdom. But first, you must refuse to follow in your ancestors' footsteps. You need to change your ways and commit to serving the Lord faithfully. And that's a message that we need to be reminded of today, isn't it? And so this morning I want us to hit the highlights of Zechariah 1 through 4 and, and let this ancient young preacher challenge us to become the kind of people that God is shaping for service in His kingdom. Let's begin with Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Boy, how's that for an opening line for his first sermon as a young preacher? The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? In other words, didn't my word, doesn't my commands outlive your forefathers and the prophets before? Then they repented. 
and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as He determined to do. So the first thing that Zechariah reminds us of today is that we are called to service. You and I are called to service. Like many Christians today, the people to whom Zechariah was preaching, they didn't think they were called to serve God. They had forgotten that Israel existed to serve the Lord, not the other way around. They had become disillusioned and distracted from their original calling to be God's kingdom of priests to the rest of the world, to show God's glory and love to the other nations, to to be a blessing to all the families on earth. That was Israel's purpose. So in Zechariah's first vision that he has, it's him sort of getting to listen in on this conversation between the Lord Almighty and a figure known as the angel of the Lord. And listen to this vision in verse 14. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy. And there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. God revealed to Zechariah his divine plan. And it was this, that his holy presence would return to Jerusalem. That he would rebuild his temple and dwell there. And the towns of Judah would prosper. And God himself will comfort Jerusalem as his chosen city. Now, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that God has a plan, right? I mean, we all know and understand as Christians that our God is a God who is on mission to redeem a lost and fallen world. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the heart of God. That is God's mission and purpose at work in the world. And we all know that God's will shall ultimately be accomplished, right? He is the sovereign God. But for those who return from exile they had some serious doubts about their future. They wondered whether God had given up on them. So to hear this message, that God had still chosen them, that God would dwell in their midst again in a rebuilt temple, that He would punish the nations that had so oppressed and mistreated them, this was great news. But they failed to realize that God almost always chooses to carry out His plan Through His people. If the temple were to be rebuilt, guess whose hands have to rebuild it? Their hands. If God's holy presence was going to dwell in the midst of the people, guess who had to confess and repent of their sins and consecrate themselves? They did. That's the way God works. Not much has changed in the intervening millennia since then. Some Christians today... Fall into the same boat. They expect God to save their lost family and friends, but they make no effort whatsoever to share the gospel with them. 
Some Christians expect God to make sure their kids are going to grow up to be honest, hardworking, responsible citizens and loving and faithful spouses and parents and men and women who are going to love and follow Jesus no matter what, but they make no effort whatsoever to pray for them or to make sure that they are in church regularly or to read God's Word with them at home. Some Christians expect God to bring a spiritual awakening to save our country or to revive His church, but they don't pray for revival or awakening. They don't fast. They don't give or go on mission to their community or to the world. Too many Christians today don't think that they're called to serve God. That's for someone else to do. That's what the preacher's for. That's what we give to missions for. Let them go do it. It's like the story I heard about four people. Maybe you've heard this story. Four people named everyone, someone, anyone, and no one. There was an important job to be done, and everyone was sure that someone would do it. Anyone could have done it, but no one did it. Everyone, someone, got angry about that because he thought that it was everyone's job. Everyone thought that anyone could do it, but no one realized that everyone wouldn't do it. And it ended up that everyone was angry with someone because no one did what anyone could have done. Now, I want to tell you, I've looked over this church's membership roles extensively. I've studied it. And here's what I've learned. That everyone, someone, anyone, and no one don't go to church here. Couldn't find their names anywhere. They never did. And they never will. Because if you're a Christian, God hasn't called someone to serve. God has called you to serve. You. He expects you to take responsibility. He expects you to get the job done. Because no one will model Christ-likeness, prayer, worship, stewardship, honesty, and love for your children like you will do. No one else will pray for them or bring them to church like you can do. No one else can share the gospel with that lost co-worker, family, friend, or neighbor like you can. And if God is calling you to serve as a deacon, and we've got that deacon orientation coming up Tuesday night, 53 men from this church were nominated last Sunday to be a deacon. Of those 53 men, God is calling nine of those men to serve as deacons. If God is calling you to serve as a deacon, if God is calling you to sing in the choir, if God is calling you to teach a Sunday school class or lead a prayer group or take up some ministry in our church or community, no one else can do that but you. Because God has called you to do it. Paul said, in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. Let me read that again. Paul says it's a fact. God has placed the parts in the body, that's you and me, every one of us, just as He has wanted us to be. God has brought you here to this family of faith for a reason. Or wherever you go to church, God has brought you there for a reason. He has a place of service for you. And if you're not going and serving where God has placed you, then you are living in open rebellion against God. And it's not just here at church. It's where you live, where you work, where you play, where you go to school. 
Paul preached in Athens. And listen to what he said in Athens. This is in Acts 17, 26. From one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the set times for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now, Paul was talking in very broad terms about people groups, but I think this applies to us as individuals as well. God has placed you right where you are, where you work, where you go to school, even who you sit next to in class, because God is glorified as you work, live, and play with excellence to the glory of His name. And He has brought you into the path of people who are lost and on their way to an eternity without God so that they could encounter you and seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him because God is near to them in and through you. That should be sobering and exciting all at the same time. Just two verses earlier, Paul says this in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by hands, and He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything, because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. In other words, you and I today, we are the temples of God. The church is the temple of God. His Spirit dwells within us, and we are to take Him to the world. We are to shine His light for others. As we go about our lives, we are to make disciples and teach them to live in Christ's ways. You and I are called to service. And if you aren't serving in God's church, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your community, where you work or go to school, then as Zechariah says, I say to you today, return to the Lord. Turn from your evil ways and practices. Return to the Lord. And He will return to you. Some people don't serve because they just don't think they're called to serve. Is that true? No. Is that true? Have you all been listening? Do I need to go back and start that over? Now, some people, they don't serve God because not because they don't think they're called to serve, but because they don't think they're good enough to serve. They think, oh yeah, okay, I understand. God calls Christians to serve, but you just don't understand, David. I'm not Christian enough. I'm not holy enough. But Zechariah chapter 3 reminds us of something else. Not only are we called for service, we are cleansed for service. Listen to what he says in Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua. So here's another vision. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Talking about Joshua. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men of symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And that day each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Joshua was the high priest among those who returned from exile. And in this vision, he is standing in a courtroom. And in this vision, Joshua represents the nation. He is standing before the the Lord, the judge, representing the nation of Israel. Because that's what a priest did. A priest stood before God and represented the people. And he stood before the people and he represented God. Now, in this vision, the Lord is the judge. Satan is the prosecution. And the angel of the Lord is the defense. Now, Satan does what he does. He stands and accuses us before God. He gleefully points out our sin. He wants to see us destroyed and separated from God for all of eternity. That's Satan's goal. But the angel of the Lord stands on the side of redemption. And why is that? Because the angel of the Lord is the Old Testament name for the pre-incarnate Christ. Nearly every time you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is a physical manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the eternal Word. I mean, who else but Jesus can forgive sins, right? But look at verses 4 and 5. He says, see, I have taken away your sin. Only Jesus can take away our sins, amen? Now, we all face, like Joshua here, we all face the same Situation. We have thoughts and feelings of inadequacy because the same Satan is throwing our failures and our weaknesses and our sins back up in our face all the time. See, once we're saved, Satan can't touch our soul, right? But he can touch our witness. He can discourage us, distract us, demotivate us. He wants you to be impotent and ineffective. He doesn't want you serving the Lord. And so Satan will probably tell you that you're just a sinful wretch deserving judgment, not forgiveness. And apart from Christ, he's right. We, we, we are sinful wretches that deserve judgment. But if we have given our lives to Jesus Christ, if we follow Him as our Lord and Savior, then listen to the truth, not Satan's lies. Isaiah 43:25, God says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins No more. Satan may try to remind you of your sins, but God has chosen to remember them no more. Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And I love that. He didn't say north from south, because eventually if you go north, what do you end up doing? Going south. They meet. But if you start going east, will you ever go west? No. You'll just always be going east. God has thrown our sins so far from us that we will never again be faced with them. Romans 8.1 Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. How much condemnation do you face as a Christian? 
None. Zero. That's the truth. It doesn't get any plater than that. Do we sin? Yes, of course. But when we come to faith, when we come to faith in Christ, when we repent of our sins, Jesus tells us, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And because of the mercy and grace of God, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And we can go out into the world as His witnesses because His Spirit indwells us. We are perfectly qualified for serving God in His church and in the world. Look again at verses 6 and 7. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. As disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to strive to walk according to Christ's commandments, aren't we? We are to strive to walk in His ways and to keep His requirements. That includes both our personal holiness and our ministry effectiveness. In other words, we tend first to our own spiritual health and growth, much as I said to Chase and Nicole. We, first, we have, to, we have to engrave these commandments on our own hearts but then we engrave them on the doors and on the walls and we talk about them everywhere we go when we rise up, when we sit down. First, we make sure that we are growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. But then in addition to that, we are to be praying for and serving others in Jesus' name and sharing the gospel with the lost and discipling those who are spiritually younger than we are and teaching them to walk in the ways of Christ. For Joshua, this meant governing God's temple and being in charge of God's courts. And the accompanying blessing to this faithful service was that he would have a place among these standing here. Now in this vision, where is Joshua standing? He's standing in the court of God. He's standing among the angels of God. In other words, the Lord is saying that Joshua would have free access into God's divine presence. He could enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. For you and me, this means that as forgiven people, we are called to live lives of personal holiness and faithful service. And if we do so, God promises to honor us with privileged responsibilities, with unhindered fellowship with Him. And we can be assured that we also have access to the throne room of grace. We are called to serve. We are cleansed for service. But there's one more excuse that people use to convince themselves that, that God just doesn't expect much from them. And that's that you're not worried about being called or qualified to serve, but you just don't think you're equipped to serve the Lord. You may say, you know, what do I have to offer God? I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. I, I'm not very good at talking to people. I'm not great at working with kids. If that's your line of thinking, you have made one egregious error. You have confused ability with availability. Now, this may be a bit of a cliche, but you know what cliches are? They're, 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 they're cliches because they're true. And so, God doesn't call the able so much as God calls the available. God doesn't call the qualified he qualifies those He's called. In other words, you are empowered for service. You are empowered for service. Now, in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah has yet another strange dream where he sees this lampstand. 
It's like the lampstands that are in the temple. You've seen a menorah before. It's got the seven little you know, uh, branches and the seven candles on top of it. And, and all these flames are burning. But unlike the lampstand in the temple, which had to have a priest refill it with oil each and every day, this lampstand has a bowl on top of it with channels running to each of the flames. And the oil is just constantly flowing from the bowl to the flames. And the bowl is constantly being refilled from these two olive trees that are standing on either side of it. So fresh olive oil is coming into the bowl. It's going into the flames so that this lamp is, is just burning continuously. Now Zechariah sees this and he wants to know, what does this mean? Well, the lampstand in the Old Testament always represented the people of Israel. They were there to burn as a light that reveals God's holy and powerful presence to the world. In Revelation chapters 1 through 3, in the letters to the seven churches, the church is compared to a lampstand. We are now the lampstand, and we are to shine out the gospel of Jesus Christ to point people to the holy, powerful, merciful presence of Jesus Christ. That's what the lamp represents. Oil in the Old Testament always represented the Holy Spirit. Whenever oil was poured onto a priest or king's head to anoint them, there was always a prayer and an expectation that just as the oil poured on their head, God's Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them as well to empower and equip them and give them wisdom and strength for serving God. With that in mind, listen to verses 4 through 6. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So God is calling on Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people of Israel to rebuild the temple to serve Him faithfully before the nations, but God doesn't expect them to do that in their might or power, but by the empowering of His Holy Spirit. Now, there are two main points I want us to grasp on this last thought. One is that God provides the power. God provides the power. Consider this lampstand. Think about this endless supply of oil. The lampstand is God's people shining into the darkness. The oil is the Holy Spirit empowering them to do that. Now listen to what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount with this image in your mind. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, a lamp in the first century was no different than it was in the time of Zechariah. They were oil lamps. And what is the source of energy for the flame burning on that oil lamp? Oil. Very good. Excellent. For us today, a light bulb might be a source of light that you would use in your house to, to shine so you can see. But first it needs a power source, doesn't it? Good old Georgia power. If you're going to see anything at night, you've got to put that in a lamp and plug it into the wall and hope that you've paid your electric bill. Well, the same is true for us. We are, are like that light bulb. We shine God's glory 
as we serve the world together in Jesus' name, as we go and share the gospel of Christ with others, as we feed the hungry and visit the sick and clothe the naked, as we make disciples of all nations, as we go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But without the Holy Spirit's power, we're not shining a light for anyone. Now, we may still do good things, but God receives no glory. The Spirit's not unleashed to transform hearts and minds. The kingdom isn't expanded. The church doesn't grow. The lost aren't saved. And disciples aren't made. We do the work, but it must be empowered by God. Jesus used another analogy, one that we heard in our New Testament reading. He talked about fruit and branches and vines instead of lamps and oil. And He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. With Christ, we can accomplish all things. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. And with God, nothing will be impossible. But apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Nothing of any lasting, much less eternal worth or value. God Provides the power. But second thought, God finishes the work. Look at verses 7 through 10. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. And then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. God called Zerubbabel to a task, and God was going to see it through to completion. God even promised to remove the mountains, the obstacles from before Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel faced a lot of opposition. But God dealt with them, and he was free to finish the work that God had called him to do. Paul tells us that we can be confident that whatever work God has begun in and through us, He will see it through to the end. Paul said, being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian today, then the power of the Holy Spirit indwells you. God has called you to serve. God has shaped you to serve through your unique personality and your natural abilities, through your skills and life experiences and and especially through the spiritual gifts that God has given you. If you're a Christian, you are as qualified to serve God as me or as Matt or as Billy Graham, not that we're at least anywhere on the level of Billy Graham, or as the apostles Paul or Peter, you are just as qualified. I am just as qualified. There are no entry-level positions in the kingdom of God. You stand before the throne of God just as forgiven and cleansed of sin as any other follower of Christ. So I want to challenge you today. I want to challenge all of us today to take some time this week to meditate on these things, to pray and examine our lives. You do have a unique set of skills and perspectives and gifts that God has graced you with. God has brought you to this church. He has placed you where you live, work, and play. Even 
your neighbors, even the people you bump into in the grocery store, and He's done it for a purpose, whether you realize it or not. You are on a mission, and it's a mission that has eternal repercussions. So I pray that we would repent of our apathy, our hesitancy, our fear, our laziness, our self-centeredness, whatever it is that has kept us from serving the Lord, and that we would listen to Him this week in a spirit of surrender. And I, and I know that Matt or Ben or I, either one, would be willing to sit down with you and talk with you and help you explore how God wants you to serve. Because that's what we're here for as pastors. We're here to help equip you to serve and do the work of the ministry. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. God uses pastors to help equip you to do the works of service so the church may be built up so that we can all grow in maturity and unity and knowledge until we all attain the measure of the fullness of Christ. How is God prompting you today to serve Him? Maybe for you, God isn't just prompting you about how to serve, but where to serve. Maybe God has led you here to serve Him through this church. Don't delay in coming to surrender to that call, to a place of service. Let's talk about uniting today, or you can come next Sunday to the, to the Next Steps class, and we can talk about that. One last thing. Notice I've been saying, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian. You see, that's the first step in serving the Lord. Before God calls you to service, God calls you to salvation. He calls you first and foremost to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. That you can receive the grace and forgiveness of God. That you can become a part of His forever family. And then... You can find your place of service. Maybe today that's the call you need to answer. It's not the service. It's not the church membership. It's the saving faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to stand and sing. You come and obey as God leads you this morning.